Well, friends, would you uh, turn with me, please, to the words that we read in Luke 16, Luke chapter 16, and reading again at verse uh, 19 to 24. Luke 16 from verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abram's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abram far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. As children... We probably all grew up hearing or reading stories where the central focus, the central characters, ended up living happily ever after. I think my first exposure to this was the story Beauty and the Beast, not the Disney version, but an old Ladybird children's book. And in the book, Beauty ends up expressing her love for the beast And the witch's enchantment that has rendered him a beast is broken and he turns into a handsome prince. They get married and they all live happily ever after. Jesus, the master storyteller, doesn't always close his stories with the words and they all lived happily ever after. In fact, sometimes he does the complete opposite. This morning, as I said a little earlier, we are continuing our sermon series on stories that Jesus told, and we're looking now at this very solemn story, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And we're going to divide the passage under two headings. We're going to look at the contrast, and then we're going to look at the conversation. The contrast and the conversation. First, we have the contrast, verses 19 to 24. And here Jesus presents the contrasting fortunes of a rich man and a poor man. Now before proceeding, we can note the context. Jesus, you remember, is making his way toward Jerusalem and the cross where he will lay down his life as a sacrificial offering to secure the salvation of his people. And he's just spoken to his disciples, his followers, as well as to the Pharisees, the religious conservatives, about living shrewdly, living wisely. Living in the present, but in light of the future. He has been urging them to remember that what they do in this life will have implications and will have reverberations in the life to come. And he now tells a story about two men and their contrasting fortunes. We can begin by looking at their contrasting fortunes in life. Verses 19 to 21. Jesus starts by speaking about a rich man. Verse 19. He describes him as being a rich man. Doesn't bother giving the man a name. That's not important to the narrative. But he does describe him as being rich. And he describes him as being dressed in purple and fine linen. Uh, Purple clothing was very expensive in Jesus' day since the purple dye was extracted from uh, sea snails and the rich man wore purple on a daily basis. 
In addition to this, he wore fine linen, expensive undergarments. This is a well-dressed man. And Jesus describes him as feasting sumptuously every day. The staple diet of most Jews in the first century consisted of bread, vegetables, soup, maybe some fish. It was a very basic diet. This rich man is different. He feasts every day. He's a man who enjoys the good life. So he's not just a well-dressed man. He's a well-fed man. And then Jesus speaks about a poor man. Verses 20 and 21. He describes him as being a poor man. But he's given a name. He's given the name Lazarus, which means God helps. And day by day he is laid, literally thrown, at the, gray, at the gate of the rich man. And Jesus goes on to describe him as being covered with sores. His poverty has affected his health. And he describes him as longing to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. It's a pathetic image. This, this poor man isn't wanting much. All he wants is the, the scraps of bread that would be used to wipe the hands and the plates of those feasting in the rich man's house and would then be thrown onto the floor. That's all he wants, just those scraps of bread to eat, to, to feed on. But no one gives him anything. And to add insult to injury, Jesus describes the dogs coming and licking his sores. Now the dogs aren't friendly, cuddly pets that do away with any idea of Greyfriars Bobby standing beside his master. That's not the image we have here. The dogs in Jesus' day were unclean scavengers. And so as they licked the sores of Lazarus, they're not providing him with any comfort. They're simply contaminating him and making his situation worse. Then in verses 22 and 23, we see the contrasting fortunes of these two men in death. We have the death of the poor man, beginning of verse 22. Jesus says that the poor man died. Eventually, his miserable life gives way to death. A death that no one seems to acknowledge. No mention of a funeral. No mention of a burial. And when he dies, the angels are sent to carry him. And they carry him all the way to Abraham's side. More literally, Abraham's bosom. Abraham was the father of the Jewish nation. Also regarded as being the father of the faithful. And when he dies, this poor man is brought to Abraham's side. Brought to the realm of the blessed. He is brought into heaven. R.C. Sproul calls this a tender portrait of the mercy of heaven. And then we have the death of the rich man. Verses 22 and 23. After some time the rich man also died. All his wealth, all his material possessions couldn't prevent the inevitable. He might have been able to afford private health care, might have had a private dentist, private doctor, private psychiatrist, private psychologist, bought into all that health care, and yet he dies. And following his death, he's buried, he's honoured even in death. He's given a great burial, given a grand send-off. Everyone would have lined the streets for this man's funeral. Maybe the town came to a standstill. Maybe the community came to a standstill. Maybe the country came to a standstill. But that's not the end of the story for him. Because unlike Lazarus, he's not carried by the angels to Abram's side. He finds himself in Hades, the, the shadowy underworld. And he's in torment in this place. 
And while in that condition, he looks up and he sees Abram far off. And he doesn't just see Abraham far off, he also sees and recognizes that Lazarus is at his side. Lazarus is in his bosom. Now friends, as we consider these verses, we're being confronted with a strong reminder. A strong reminder, that's what we see in Luke 16. Jesus speaks about a poor man who died, and then he speaks about a rich man who died. Jesus is giving a strong reminder that every single person, whoever they are, whatever their status, whatever their circumstance, every single person will die. It's a strong reminder. And it's important for us to reflect on. Brownlow North was a 19th century evangelist who saw a great awakening in Belfast as he conducted a series of open-air services. Many of the sermons that he preached were based on this particular parable, and in one sermon he said this, Satan, if he can possibly hinder it, will never let a man remember that he must die. Nevertheless, unless the Lord Jesus comes first, you, whoever you are, will one day certainly die. It may be today or it may be not for years, but sooner or later, as men said of the rich man and Lazarus, so they will be one day saying of you, he is dead. He is dead. How often have you said it of others? You have said it of young as well as of old, of the apparently healthy as well as of the infirm and sick of those not only that you thought likely to die, but of those you thought most unlikely to die, of those you thought as little likely to die as you do yourself this minute. These all died when you did not expect it, and so when you do not expect it, perhaps, you also will die. At all events, you will die. It is appointed unto man once to die, as you have said so often of others, so others will one day say of you, he is dead. Now, friends, I don't want to be overly morose today. I don't want to be overly moribund today, especially as we have some visitors with us. But it's essential that every one of us remembers that our lives will not go on and on and on. They will come to an end. And they might come to an end sooner than we think. One day, it will be our notices, our death notices that people are reading It'll be our funerals that people are attending. It'll be our families that people are comforting. It'll be our coffins that people are carrying. It'll be our graves that people are digging. It'll be our bodies that people are burying. Friends, this is a very strong reminder that every person in this building, unless the Lord returns will die. And you can't, you can't pretend it's not going to happen. But as we consider these verses, we're also being confronted with two separate destinations. Not just a strong reminder, but separate destinations. That's what we see in Luke 16. Jesus speaks about a poor man who, after dying, was carried to Abram's side carried to the realm of blessing, he he went to heaven, and he speaks about this rich man who, after dying, found himself in Hades, found himself in the realm of torment. He went to hell. 
Jesus is outlining that there are two separate destinations that a person can find themselves in. And that again is important for us to reflect on. Jesus clearly taught that there is an afterlife. That there is a life that goes beyond this life. And he clearly taught that there are two destinations in which a person might find themselves. There is a realm of blessing. But there is also a realm of torment. And what's more, Jesus clearly taught that both of these destinations are inhabited. That it's not just that you go to the realm of the blessed, but there are also people who go to the realm of torment. You know, I often hear people say, and, and, and it now grates on me, it, it actually makes me feel physically sick. I often hear people say, Especially after someone has died from a long debilitating illness. I hear them say, and you've heard them say it too, well they're at peace now. They're at peace now. Now it's a comforting sentiment. It's a nice sentiment. It's, it's a well-meaning, well-intentioned sentiment. But I have to say, and I say this with the authority of God's word behind me, that while there is peace for some, there isn't peace for all. There are two destinations post-death. And every person goes to one or to the other. It is the great divorce. It is the ultimate division. It is the final separation. So there you have the contrast. And then we have the conversation, verses 25 to 31, where Jesus presents the conversation between the rich man and Lazarus. In verses 24 to 26, we hear the man's request for relief. We can start by hearing the frantic request in verse 24. We've already seen that the rich man was in torment and he looked up and he had seen Lazarus and Abraham far off and he now calls out Father Abraham. Isn't it significant that this man doesn't cry out to God? You know, he gave no thought to God in life, so why is he going to give thought to God in death? And he calls out to Abraham, calls out to the Father Of his people, the man whom he shared a common lineage with. And he calls out to Abram to have mercy on him. Wants Abram to take pity on him. Wants Abram to show compassion toward him. Wants Abram to give him mercy that he himself had never shown anyone in life. And he tells Abraham to send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in some water and cool his tongue since he's in anguish in this flame. This man is depicted as being in a place of flame, a place of fire, and and all he wants is just one drop of water, one little drop. He says that would be enough, just one drop. We move, though, from the frantic request to the firm reply, verses 25 and 26. Abram begins... And he calls him child. It's a tender word. There's no malice in Abram. No vindictiveness in Abraham. And he speaks to the man about a great reversal. He reminds him that during his lifetime, he had received his good things while Lazarus had received bad things. And during that lifetime, 
he had done nothing to alleviate Lazarus' suffering. You know, again, isn't it significant that, that he knew Lazarus' name? And isn't it significant that he knew Lazarus' situation? And isn't it significant that he did nothing to help him? Didn't even give him a scrap of bread from his table. But now Abram says a great reversal has taken place. It's Lazarus who's comforted and the rich man who's in anguish. And then Abram speaks to the man not just about a great reversal but also about a great chasm. He tells him that a great chasm, an unbridgeable abyss has been fixed. And the result of this is that no one may pass from the realm of blessing into the realm of torment. But not only that, no one may pass from the realm of torment into the realm of blessing. It is an unbridgeable great chasm. Then in verses 27 to 31, we hear the man's request for his brothers. We can start by hearing his fearful request. Verses 27 and 28. He doesn't argue the point with Abram, but he does make another appeal. And he begs him to send Lazarus to his father's house. Isn't it interesting that even in death, even in the realm of torment, even in Hades, even in hell, he still thinks that Lazarus is his lackey. Even in that place of torment, he still demeans Lazarus and thinks that Lazarus should be his little errand boy doing what he wants Lazarus to do. It's clear that this this horrid, awful place of torment has no positive, improving influence on this man whatsoever. In fact, we might say he's just getting worse and worse. And he begs Abram to send Lazarus to his father's house to warn his five brothers so that they do not come to the place of torment. He recognizes that it's too late for him. Sentence is passed. Situation's irreversible. Too late for him. But it's not too late for his brothers. And he wants Lazarus to then be sent on a mission trip, an evangelism trip, an outreach trip to his brothers. And we move from that fearful request to the final reply in verses 29 to 31. Abram is very matter of fact as he tells the man that his brothers have Moses and the prophets and they should hear them. These brothers have the scriptures. They have the revelation that God had given through Moses, given through the prophets. His brothers have the word that God had spoken concerning judgment, concerning salvation. His brothers have the divine revelation that would tell him about the importance of living in the present in light of the future. They have the word that would have said to them, you must repent, you must turn away from your present course of action and you must turn to God. They have that revelation. But the man's unwilling to accept now what Abraham is saying. Look at what he says. No, Father Abraham. And he informs him that if someone returns to his brothers from the dead... Then and only then will they repent. Then and only then will they believe. If someone such as Lazarus would come to them from beyond the grave, then they'd believe. Then they'd be convinced of the seriousness of the matter. If Lazarus was to appear before them, they would say there is indeed a heaven to gain. There is indeed a hell to shun. Because we saw this man die. And there he is standing before us. 
telling us about life post-death. And upon hearing this, Abram gives a final word. He assures this man that if his brothers are currently refusing to listen to God's revelation through Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone should rise and return from the grave, the dead. And you know, it's almost as if, it's almost as if in telling this story, Jesus is anticipating the response to his own resurrection from the dead. You see, yes, Jesus knows that he is going to the cross, but he also knows that after the cross, he will rise from the dead. And, and he knows that not even his resurrection from the dead will be enough to convince people of God's judgment and God's salvation. Now, friends, as we consider these verses, we've been confronted with a solemn pronouncement. Solemn pronouncement. That's what we see in Luke 16. Jesus speaks about this great chasm that makes it impossible for a person to cross from the realm of blessing into the realm of torment. Furthermore, he says that this great chasm makes it impossible to cross from the realm of torment into the realm of blessing. It is a solemn pronouncement. And that, friends, is important for us to reflect on. I know a lot of people who, when they sit in a church or sit in a cinema or sit in a cafe or sit in some other public place, they like to know where the exit is. They like to have an escape route mapped out in their heads. Now, according to Jesus, hell is a place where there are no exits. There is no escape route. It is a place where nothing and no one can change, alter, alleviate, reverse a person's situation. There is, there is no probation. There is no parole. The sentence has been passed and the sentence is final. Phil Riken writes, Hell has no exit. So by the time an unbeliever gets there, it will be too late to be saved. Too late to hear the gospel. Too late to believe in Jesus Christ. Too late to beg for mercy. And too late to avoid the everlasting agony of eternity without God. Too late. And this is why if you are not a Christian today, my appeal to you to... To take hold of Jesus is so urgent. Because time is running out. And that time isn't guaranteed. So please, friend, whatever prejudice you might have about church, or even how irritating you might find me personally, please take hold of Jesus today. And that is why, if you are a Christian, my appeal to you to tell others about Jesus is so urgent. Because time is running out. And time isn't even guaranteed. And there are people, you know them, but I don't know them. And there are people, maybe, and you know them, and maybe they can't stand me. I'm okay with that. 
I, I'm beyond caring what people think of me anymore. But you might have a word that can speak to them. Please do so. But as we consider these verses, we're also being confronted, not just with a solemn pronouncement, but with a sufficient revelation. A sufficient revelation, that's what we see in Luke 16. The rich man wants Lazarus to go to his brothers since he is sure that someone returning from the dead will convince him to repent, will convince him to believe. And Abram says that they have Moses and they have the prophets. And if they don't listen to them, then they will not believe even if someone should rise from the dead. In other words, they have a sufficient revelation. And again, that is important for us to reflect on. You know, so many people say that they will become Christians. They will become disciples. They will become followers of Jesus. But they need a particular sign. They need a particular sensation. And and maybe you're one of those people today. Maybe you're sitting in this building today and you're saying, well, yes, I'd like to become a Christian. I'd like to become a follower of Jesus. But I want a particular sign. Even if there's a rainbow shining out Sandwich Hall this afternoon, that will be a sign for me. Or I want a particular sensation so that when Hugh is speaking the gospel, I might feel a little tickle in my back or a little prick in my ears. And that will be a sign. That will be enough. And Jesus is saying to such a person, you don't need a sign. You don't need a sensation. Because you have the word of God. You have the Old and New Testaments. You have the scriptures. You have the gospel. And according to Jesus, such a revelation is sufficient. It is enough. Indeed, it is more than enough. These scriptures are all that a person needs in order to avoid the realm of torment and enter the realm of blessing through salvation in Jesus alone. J.C. Ryle writes, This wretched waiting for something which we have not and neglect of what we have is the ruin of thousands of souls. Faith, simple faith in the scriptures that we already possess is the first thing needful to salvation. The man who has the Bible and can read it and yet waits for more evidence before he becomes a dedicated Christian is only deceiving himself. Except he awakens from his delusion, he will die in his sins. Now friends, I know these things are very hard to hear. And believe me, they are very hard to preach. In fact, this week I thought, can I not just phone Donnie Rankin and ask Donnie to preach for me? But I hope, I hope you've heard them being said in love. The love of an inadequate and insignificant pastor from allness who would do anything to see every person in this building receive God's full and free salvation. I said it to Natalie the other week. I said, I would do anything to see every person in our congregation saved. 
I said I'd be willing to have a hand amputated to see every person in this congregation saved. And she said, well, you're not going to get very far in your sermon saying, are you? But I love you and I honestly wish that some of you would make that step and rest on Jesus and Jesus alone by faith. But I hope you've also heard these words being said in love and the love of an indescribable, incomparable Saviour who has come from heaven and who has done everything needful, everything sufficient so that every person in this building, any person in this building can be saved through resting on him and him alone. I'm speaking to you today, friends, in love. But it's not just me speaking. Jesus is speaking through this parable in love. As I was working through this sermon, and I was on a real downer working on this sermon. It's it's not been an easy week working on this sermon. And as I was working on this sermon, the thought suddenly crossed my mind. What if this is the last opportunity that someone in this building has? Or maybe someone listening online has to respond to the gospel, to respond to the word of life. What if this is the last opportunity? Don't waste it. Let's play.